So, today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're not going to get very far. We're going to do about verses 1 through 5. Um, you know, I always, I always want to go longer, but I just can't do it. So, you'll have to forgive me today. I, I've, been, I've been pretty sick over the weekend. If at any point I kind of pass out, you just hang out for a minute, I'll wake up. And I'll, I'll stand up and try to figure out where I was. Um, I've eaten a total of like four crackers all weekend. So, But they, I put sugar on them, so we're good. So, alright, so we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to work our way through this passage. I'm having a really hard time controlling the slideshow here. I don't really know what's going on. I don't know. I'm sure we'll work it out. Alright. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you have been doing for us. Um, thank you for, uh, for um, your word, for preserving it for these few thousands of years so that we could sit here this very morning and we could read the words of, uh, of your servant Paul and um, we could um, try to grasp the things that he wanted his people, his church in, in Corinth to understand. Um, wake us up to something that is, that is important for us to know this morning. Um, Teach us something, maybe give us that missing puzzle piece that will make some things make sense. Um, let, your, let your gospel ring clear this morning for anyone here who, who doesn't quite understand it, doesn't quite get it yet, or hasn't, um, hasn't accepted it. Um, do your work this morning, send your spirit and guide us. Um, use me, speak through me, may these be your words, and uh, may we never force any interpretations into the text that aren't supposed to be there. We love you, Father, in your name, amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what we're going to get to today. I, I, I had a plan on covering much of chapter 2, but the things that I learned while, while diving into to the beginning of the first five verses um, sort of took up like 12 pages of notes, so I just figured we'd stay here today. Um, so, settle in, be cozy. Um, so he starts off by saying, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. There's a word that he starts off there using. Um, it is this Greek word, Sophia. Um, this is a, you may have heard the name Sophia, it means, means basically means wisdom. Um, it's where we get the word sophist, it's where we get the word sophistry. Um, in English, it's where several words we get are connected to it. It's the word sophisticated, the word sophomore. Um, all of these have to do with wisdom, knowledge, education, things like that. And, and um, some of them, there, there's actually even negative phrases. You've heard the word sophomoric, like when they say they're so sophomoric. Um, it's sort of a negative phrase. Um, these, these phrases all sort of, sort of link together to talk about uh, someone who is either very highly educated or someone who thinks they are highly educated. Um, originally, the Greek word sophist meant wise man and in good sense, but eventually it came to mean this. It came to mean a, a man with a clever mind and a cunning tongue, a mental acrobat. Um, if you read a lot of the ancient writers, a lot of the, even the secular writers about, about ancient uh, first, second century Greece, um, you're going you're gonna to see quite clearly that 
the most well-respected person in any Greek civilization was the person who spoke the most eloquently, who, um, who used the biggest words, who had the, the grandest ideas, who could quote from all the different authors of the day. Um, um, I read one guy, he said it was a man with glittering persuasive rhetoric who could make the worse appear the better reason. Somebody who could basically persuade you into anything. They could take, so this is what you should definitely do, when everyone knows it's the worst thing that you should do, but somehow they're so sly and smart and witty that they could dupe you into doing that and thinking that that's obviously the better thing to do. Um, so this is what it eventually came to mean. It meant a man who would spend endless hours discussing these hair-splitting, really stupid arguments, something that really doesn't matter, but they would spend all their time arguing it. Um, so I'm trying to build a picture here of what it was like to have a, have a conversation in first century uh, Greco-Roman city, such as Corinth. Um, having a conversation with somebody, it would really be sort of this, like, sort of this sparring, going back and forth, trying to top the other person with your wisdom, and that's what they spent all day doing. Um, is someone who liked to argue but never really had any interest in solutions. Um, I know a lot of people like this. They just like to argue over everything for the sake of argument. They don't really care about where, this, where the solution is or, or what they're um, trying to get at. Um, it's someone who simply loves the mental hike, if you will. Um, they, they don't care about what's on the top of the mountain. They enjoy beating the other guy up it. All right? Um, all of these things pretty much describe to a T what it was like to have a normal conversation in the city of Corinth. Um, there's a man named Chrysostom. If you could, uh, I think I got this one. I got, looks like I got a blank screen. My bad. All right. There's a man named Chrysostom, and he wrote this. Um, they croak like frogs in a marsh. They are the most wretched of men because, though ignorant, they think themselves wise, and they are like peacocks, showing off their reputation and the number of their pupils as peacocks do their tails. I think that's a pretty brilliant way of putting this. They walk around showing how many pupils they have, like as, as like a peacock would fan his feathers out to show how beautiful he is. Um, um, he wrote something else here. Um, oh, you know what? There's the top one again. My slides are all messed up. Here's the bottom one. Um, here's another thing he wrote about them. He wrote, you might hear many poor wretches of selfists shouting and abusing each other, and their disciples as they call them, squabbling, and many writers of books reading their stupid compositions, and many poets singing their poems, and many jugglers exhibiting their, mar their marvels, and many soothsayers giving the meaning of prodigies, and 10,000 rhetoricians twisting lawsuits, and no small number of traders driving their several trades. Um, the, this, guy, this Chrysostom fellow didn't really like the Greek people very much and the way that they behaved themselves, and this is how we talked about them. Um, this is very, very typical. Um, the Corinth people were what you would call, if, if we were like in the Wild Wild West back in the day, people still use this, um, silver-tongued or snake oil salesmen. They could just sell you anything, and you would buy it because of the way that they do it, the way that they say it. You ever, you ever met somebody that, um, I guess sometimes today we call them used car salesmen, if you will. Always, he's like a used car salesman. I'm not, I'm not trying to knock anybody who's a used car salesman, but that's something you hear people say to like, in other words, they're pretty sly, and they can put you into a car that's not worth what you're paying for. Um, and so that's sort of the way that they were looked at. There's another man here. Um, his name was Plutarch, and he wrote this about him. They made their voices sweet with musical cadence and modulations of tone and echoes of resonance. Basically, he's saying that when they talked, they didn't just talk, they, they sort of sung, and they, they, they sort of made these beautiful sounds with their voices. They thought not of what they were saying, but how they were saying it. Um, their, uh, doesn't look right. their thought might be poisonous as long as it was enveloped in honeyed words. So, obviously, a lot of people felt the same way about, about the Greco-Roman societies um, and the way that they spoke. Um, 
the Greeks were intoxicated with fine words. Um, so I want you to imagine a simple Christian preacher marching into a city like this and telling a story about, about someone who was king of the universe but was killed by his own creation and then resurrected a few days later. Nobody had ever told stories like this. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not something that the people were infatuated with. It's not something that really caught their eye. And they were mocked terribly, um, especially in the Greek cities. They were really mocked when they talked about these things. Um, it would have been pretty brutal, even more so than today. Um, do you remember what Paul said in the last chapter? He said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is what he's talking about. Paul didn't walk in with these really lofty things to say. Paul didn't walk in with these modulations of, of, his, of his voice and, and, and try to wow people with what he was saying. He just walked in and told a story of a man named Jesus. Um, and he said, and it's a true story. This is not a metaphor. This is not any of that. This is something that actually happened. And um, the message of the cross was foolishness to those who were perishing. Now, uh, something that's worth noting here is that Paul had just come from Athens. Um, it was at Athens that for only... Okay, something happened in Athens that was really, um, really fascinating. We hear about a place called Mars Hill. Um, we read about it in Acts 17, um, some of the words that he said there. We're going to talk about these in just a second. But in Acts uh, 17, you see Paul, marking in, Paul marching into the, the, the Greek city of Athens. Um, the people there were brilliant. The, the greatest philosophers in the world came from there. They wrote there. And Paul goes walking into this place called Mars Hill, which is a very uh, small little upper place in the city, um, sort of a rocky place, and the people would stand in a circle, and they would, they would debate, and hundreds or possibly thousands of people would come to listen to them do this. Um, so Paul walks into Athens, and, and, and he sees this, he hears about this place, Mars Hill, and he goes up there, and he starts speaking, and what he does is he actually tries to match um, the words of the philosophers, and he, he speaks in these brilliant tones, he says something like this, um, this is actually um, um, a quote from a, an author named Epimenides, um, he wrote about Zeus. So this is the, the author Epimenides, um, one of his characters, Zeus, um, had said something, and Paul quotes it. He says that they should seek God and perhaps um, feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then right here he quotes Epimenides. He takes one of their, their quotes and he says this, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. And he's quoting that guy. Um, For we are indeed his offspring. So he, he tries to, like, wow them with his words. And something you may not realize, as much as you hear about this, uh, this, this ministry that happened on Mars Hill, it was one of the very few times where Paul actually failed. It was not a success. Mars Hill was not a success, really. Not much at all. There was, like, maybe five people that became followers of Christ. Um, we, we today like to look back at it and talk about how it was, it was this epic moment where he, he attacked them with their own reasoning and and blew them all away. He didn't. They scoffed him. They laughed at him. They had, none of them really listened to him at all, and they're like, that's really interesting. We'll talk to you later about this. And maybe five people became followers of Jesus from this city. In all of the other cities, all he did is walked in. If you read the book of Acts, every time Paul went into a city, all he did is just told the story of Jesus. Hundreds of people came to Christ every single time he said it. All kinds of people were coming, becoming disciples. So he walks in, and he decides at this point, um, these people are really brilliant. They're going to look down on me if I, do a, if, if I don't sort of match their, their quotes. And he did an amazing job, don't get me wrong, of, of really using their own sort of methods and turning it towards Christ. But all in all, if you compare it to all the other work, it was a grand failure. Not that, I mean, those five people coming to Christ were a success. Um, but it didn't have, 
any of the impact that it might have had had he been a little more simple with it. Um, now, um, Paul's sermon approach on Mars Hill, while not having the great impact on that day, since then it, it can be seen as having a, a big impact in the long run. Um, his work with philosophy, with, with approaching reason, and w- with all these philosophers, it's because of that sermon that men like G.K. Chesterton, Thomas Aquinas, Kierkegaard, C.S. Lewis, and a lot of others have engaged in philosophy and apologetics over the years. So it's led to some really great things. But when Paul did it, it really didn't work out very well. And so Paul goes straight from Mars Hill, and he leaves the city, and he walks over to Athens, and he says this. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. See, when you put it in context, it has a little bit of meaning. It's almost like I've decided to go back to the basics. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He finishes up at Mars Hill, and he leaves, and he comes here, and he realizes, I'm kind of worried that if I keep going this route, possibly these people will put their faith more so in men than in God. So I'm just going to tell the simple story of the gospel, and that's what I'm going to do. And it works. And this great church was planted. Yes, the church had all kinds of problems, but a church was planted nonetheless. And it grew, and it changed. If you, um, so Acts 17 really talks about what happened there, and then we come here. Um, I'm sorry, I got a little, a little confused here. This is one of my things where my brain's not working fully because of my three crackers with sugar on them. Um, all right, so I think one of the things Paul realized and that Paul really decided he needs to focus on is the fact that the gospel is simple. The gospel is not complicated. We try to make the gospel so complicated. We try to make it so easy to digest. We try to make it so... Uh, we, we go all over the board with it. We try to make the gospel into something that will appeal to other people. The gospel is one of the most beautiful stories ever told. A story like the gospel appear, uh, appeals to people no matter what. Um, it does. The pendulum uh, of Paul's speech here, it swings from one end of, of this huge philosophical reasoning argument. It swings to the other end of him just simply telling the story of Jesus. Now, eventually, we see it sort of coming back to the middle where um, we read books like, uh, like Philippians and Colossians where he uses a lot of philosophical reasoning, a lot of, um, a lot of argument that does appeal to our intellect, but he only does that after he tells the straight story of the gospel. And so we see him eventually coming to a, a moderate stance where he does both. He sort of teaches a very simple, simple story of Jesus living and serving and loving and dying and rising again, and what that means for you. And then he talks about how, and also this story is intellectually satisfying. I believe the gospel is fully intellectually satisfying. I've spent a lot of time up here, especially in the book of Colossians, explaining how intellectually satisfying the gospel is. Um, But one thing that I do know, and I think it's the same thing that Paul realized here, is that if you want to reach somebody, you have to win their heart if you want to win their head. A lot of times we, we come to people and we try to argue them into Christianity and it doesn't work. It cannot work. It never has worked. Uh, you have to reach their heart before you can get to their head. And, and the funny thing is we practice this all the time in every, er, every other aspect of life. Um, if, you watch, if you've watched any of the coverage over the last few years of, of the war in Afghanistan, what, what do you always see the soldiers saying? You always see them saying, 
Hearts and minds, hearts and minds. We're trying to win hearts and minds. Um, why? Why not just minds? Why don't you just tell them all the things you're doing? It doesn't work that way. They have been hearing things about you your whole life as a soldier. They hear that you're, that you're terrible. They hear that you're oppressive. They hear that you're murderous. Um, so what you have to do is first win their heart. You can tell them all you want and give them evidence that you're not, but they think you're just covering something up. So what you have to do is convince them um, that you really do care about them. And how do you do that? You love them. You serve them. You become their friend. And if you can become their friend, their mind will change about you. Because once they see and once they have a relationship with you, they're going to see that you're not really what you've been made out to be. And I've said this, I, I've, I've said this for years. Um, if you have a struggle with judging, with, with prejudice, judging some people group on this planet, uh, if there's some person you look at and you don't really know them, but you just hate them because of who they are or, or, um, or, or the way they act or what style of subculture they're part of, if you really want to cure that, get to know them. Because if you know someone's story, you will love them. If you know what the names of their friends were when they were a child, what games they liked to play growing up, um, what their parents were like, what their favorite hobby was when they were growing up, where they went to school, what did they study, um, did they have girlfriends, boyfriends? If you get to know people, you will love them. You're going to see that they are just like you, and they want the same things that you want. And this is the biggest cure for um, prejudice, for racism, for anything like that, is to getting to know people, win their hearts. Um, politicians know this, that, that if you hit someone um, in the heart, then you'll win their mind. Because most of the arguments you see, especially in political year, you're going to see lots of arguments. Very few of them have to do with numbers. Very few of them have to do with statistics. Most of them have to do with, this is this person. And if you vote for this guy, this is going to happen to her, and everything's going to collapse. And she's going to suffer forever. So you better not vote for that person. And this is how it works. They, they tell you this sob story trying to get you to buy in. If your heart can be bent in a certain direction, your head's going to follow. Um, all of the, the, the typical abortions, all of the, all the typical arguments, the abortion arguments, they, 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 always, they always head towards um, let's, let's prick them in the heart. Let's get them to think about this from a heart angle so they'll have pity on somebody and then they'll give them whatever they want. Um, all, all, the, all the arguments about, about health care, about, about war, whether it's just or not, about gun controls, about, about taxes, about all these things, every argument that you see, it always starts off as an argument to the heart. Every documentary you see starts with someone telling a story of someone because it's trying to get to your heart. Because if we can get to your heart, we can change your mind. Everyone knows that, and this is how everyone works. And so sometimes we go into these uh, intellectual conversations and we, we try to... We, we try to argue people into Christianity. When you actually have the ability to tell the most beautiful love story that has ever been told and to really get their heart, and you choose to go the other route, thinking their heart will follow their head, and it won't. It very rarely will. We know that if we can prick your heart, your mind will follow. And, you, and, and if your heart goes somewhere, your mind is going to start seeing things through that. So the story, um, a story of love and emotion is more powerful than a story of facts and reason. It always has been, it always will be. The world knows this. Uh, if you ever watch, um, there's plenty on YouTube, watch them sometimes, a lot of atheism, theism debates, um, debates between people who don't believe there's a God and believe there, there is. Um, they typically, um, always, at some point in the debate, divulge from what they're talking about, whether or not there's a God, and they always go into an argument of, look at the Old Testament, look how evil God is. Look at the terrible things he has done. And this is where it always goes. Is this a, a, an argument for atheism? No. It's actually an argument for theism. 
because they're admitting that there's a God. I mean, whether or not he's good or bad, a bad God is still a God. So, like, you can go there with that argument, but that's not, if you really want to debate whether or not there's a God, you're going to stick to metaphysical sort of cosmic facts, but that we never do. We always go into an argument, and, and, an argument of, well, look how bad God is here, or, or if there's no God, then how could there be evil, or all of these things. We're always trying to get to people's hearts, always. And we all know the story of Jesus is the most beautiful story that could possibly be told. The king of the universe, as Paul says, he emptied himself of everything, and he became um, just like you to win your heart. And it killed him. We know that that's a powerful story. We tell this story in our movies all the time. The person who has everything and gives it all up for love. This is the only way that that a Disney movie should end. The the prince gives up everything to marry the the pauper girl. Right? This is how they all end. Um, It's the only way the rich man will ever leave his money and power for the poor woman that he loves. Um, This is is the only way that, 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 that really rich girl from that notebook movie will ever go with poor Ryan Gosling. Right? If she chooses to give up the rich guy and all the money for the poor kid, who's obviously hideously ugly. Um, so, <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Apparently some disagreements. Um, but we know deep inside of us that this is a powerful story. That's why we tell it through movies and books. We know that, that love is more important than money. We know that that this is how things are. So to tell a story of, of a God who literally had cosmic power to create anything he wanted but chose to put that aside and give that up to come down here and walk with you, to love you. And you look at yourself and you look at him and you see how messed up you are and you see how he doesn't really care. That's a powerful story. It's something that if Paul probably had used on Mars Hill, would have made a bigger impact. The thing about the gospel is it's also an incredibly simple story. The overwhelming majority, and this is fascinating to me as as I research this, the overwhelming majority of poor, uneducated, impoverished, enslaved, and oppressed people for the last 2,000 years have been Christians. Did you know that? Typically, these people aren't educated on the ins and outs of philosophy and metaphysics. Typically, the majority of them could never read or write. Um, they, never, they knew very little about the cosmos, but they knew everything about life and love and happiness. Why? Because they had experienced all of these things. They had, they had experienced love. They had experienced loss. They had experienced struggle. And so the story of Jesus really connects with them. Now think about this. Atheism typically thrives in rich, white, western city centers. That's where atheism is abundant. Places where anything that even smells like deism is scoffed at and rejected. So think about that. Try to put this in perspective. The people who suffer the most throughout history have overwhelmingly believed that there is a God who loves them. Isn't that the argument that people use against Christianity? If there's a God who loves you, why is there suffering? It turns out the people who have suffered the most actually believe there is a God. The people who live the most affluent lives have a higher chance of believing that there is no greater purpose, no greater being. There is no God. 
Something is going on here. Something is, is, is sort of misfiring in our brains when, when it's like this. Um, I mean, this is, this is not to say that intellectual people over the years have never been Christians, because some people will hear what I just said, and they'll say, uh-huh, obviously, the more you get to know, the more you realize there is no God. Um, I would argue against that, and I have some things here to show you. You ever heard of these guys, Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Descartes, Pascal, Newton? This one's behind the piano. I can read it. You can't. Um, I'll read it to you. Don't worry. Um, these are some of the most greatest minds in science, although when they were doing their work, it wasn't called science. Um, not at that time. Copernicus, he created the theory of heliocentrism, kind of a big one. Um, he was a devout leader who worked for the church uh, most of his life as a canon. A canon is basically a member uh, of clergy um, and a physician at the same time. Um, Galileo, they called him the father of science. He made extraordinary advances in, in multiple disciplines. Um, in addition to astronomy, he believed that the authority and inerrancy of the Bible was famous, uh, and, and was famous for saying, uh, the, in, the intention of the Holy Ghost is to teach us how one, man, how one goes to heaven, not how heaven goes. A man named Kepler, he did foundational work on light and forces to better explain the motion of our heliocentric solar system, built off um, Copernicus. He was a devout Lutheran who profoundly and openly motiv was openly motivated by his faith. Descartes invented the Cartesian coordinate system, and I know you know about that one, and commonly it's called the founder of modern philosophy. He was also a faithful Christian who argued passionately for the existence of God and his many works. It's funny because some of these guys, you actually um, you hear about in these debates how the church persecuted them. Never tell the other side, do we? Sure, there was a segment of the church that persecuted Galileo, but the reason he did his work was because he believed that there was a God and that God would do things orderly. And he wanted to know what the order was. He did what he did for God, not the church. Um, Pascal invented the mechanical calculator. Incredibly useful. And made monumental advances in mathematics. I would never tip if I didn't have one of those. Um, and made monumental advances in mathematics. He was a philosopher who later in life focused almost entirely on defending the Christian faith. I had a quote from his up this morning. Pascal, if you ever, if you ever read The Foundations of Christian Faith, um, one of the most painstaking, amazing works on what it means to be and live like a Christian. It's brilliant. I have a copy of my office. It's beautiful. I love it. I read it when I'm traveling. Um, Newton, the gravity guy. He was arguably the greatest scientist to have ever lived. He ushered in a new paradigm of, of, of mechanics, invented calculus, ooh, and developed, <laughs> and developed the law of universal gravitation. I failed math several times in college. <laughs> All right. was not a fan. My professor totally had it out for me, though. He really did. Um, <clears throat> Newton was a committed theist who wrote more about faith and religion than he did about science. Somehow this stuff doesn't really get sort of spelled out to us very, on, very often. Um, and the question is, why did these men embark on these lofty searches of natural philosophy? That's what science was called before we called it science in the 19th century. They called it natural philosophy. And the question is, why did these men really, as, as believers in God, why did they 
launch into um, studies in natural philosophy. A couple of them said something that goes like this. It was their belief that God would create, that a God who existed would create an orderly and comprehensible universe. And that led them to study the natural world and make scientific discoveries. So not only does the emotional story and meaning of the gospel connect with our deepest emotions in our hearts, <clears throat> but once we go there, we come to see that the intellectual side of the scriptures is satisfying. The scripture doesn't really just connect with our, with our, with our hearts, it also connects with our minds. But I believe more often than not, it's never, whenever we're going to really see it. Through our, I, I mean, I've read about people that have, if you've ever read a book called There is a God by Anthony Flew, um, he was an atheist, very, very famous atheist for a lot of years, who eventually became a Christian through the th when, when he was studying um, evolutionary biology, and, and he saw order, and he saw all this stuff, and he, became, he came to believe that there was a God from everything that he saw. Um, it's a really fascinating story, so read that one. That's a good one. Um, the gospel is emotionally satisfying. It's intellectually satisfying. It's all of that. Um, honestly, more often than not, though, we just simply go the intellectual route, the reasoning route. We try to argue people into Christianity, and it doesn't really work. You can't argue somebody into a relationship. I mean, if I came up to you, one of you single guys, and said, hey, dude, there's this girl in a car out here. You need to go marry her. Why? Because she's smart, she's pretty, she's got a great job, lots of money, happy family. Um, you guys have this in common, this in common. I can give you all this intellectual stuff about why she is perfect for you, but you're not going to go get in the car and marry her. Why? Because you don't know her. You might go on a date, all right? Um, so, I mean, it's useful for some aspect of it, but until people fall in love, they're not going to commit. They're not going to. One of the things I've found is that most non-Christians are not looking for evidence, and, this is, and this, is, this is important to me. They're not really looking for evidence for why they should believe it. They're looking for evidence that you actually believe it yourself. And this is important because they're watching you to see if the things that you teach, the things that you say, are things that you actually believe and live. Um, most Christians treat others as if they aren't equal, especially Western Christians. We, we, we some, for some reason, miss the part of the gospel about how God has chosen us. And we are not special because we have chosen God. God has chosen us, despite who we are and the things that we have done. Yet we stand in the presence of other people who are not followers of Christ, and we look down on them because they haven't made the journey that we have or come to the intellectual decisions that we have or, or learned what we have or had the humility to repent of our sins like we have. Um... And we look down on them. What are we missing? They're watching you to see whether or not you actually believe in the grace and you practice the grace that you preach. So intellectually, they're looking for it to make sense in your life, not necessarily their own. Most Christians neglect to understand that they have been saved despite the way that they live, and they continue to live. And because God has loved them and shown them mercy and it saved them. And that's exactly how they were supposed to act with all those around them. And the truth is that the simplest act of love and grace and peace is, is a greater argument for the gospel than any 300-page intellectual philosophy book written by any smart Christian. Your simple act of servanthood, of love, of sacrifice, says more about the gospel than the biggest argument you could ever give. It really does. 
And now I see what Paul meant when he said, I decided not to use lofty words or eloquent speech. I decided rather to just tell the story of Jesus and how he was crucified and buried and resurrected. Verse 4, I mean, it says it like this, my speech wasn't even plausible, but it was a demonstration of power. How, how was it a demonstration of power? Because he, he said very little, he told a very simple story, and hundreds of people came to Christ. It is a demonstration of the power of the simple story of the gospel. <clears throat> Perhaps you are here this morning and you have felt inadequate. You have felt like there's people that, <clears throat> that I need to talk to about the gospel and about Jesus Pardon me. And I don't know what to say. I have nothing adequate to say. They are very smart. They're highly educated. I'm just kind of not. <clears throat> or at least I don't feel like I am. And I don't know what to say. I don't have any brilliant arguments. I, I, I'm not a C.S. Lewis. Um, I, I, I have nothing. I don't know what to say. That can, that can really convince them that they can have peace, that they can have hope. I want them to have the joy and the hope that I have, but I can't give it to them because I'm just not smart enough. Maybe you feel this way. I want you to know that acts of grace and peace are the greatest arguments for the truth of the kingdom. That this is how things should be, that this is the right way to live. When people finally grasp the gospel, they start to see everything by it, and the persuasive arguments don't really matter anymore at that point. If you, want to, if you want to show somebody that, that the gospel's right and that it's real, that it's true, live it out in front of them. Let them feel the gospel, uh, the feeling of, of being loved no matter how badly they treat you, the feeling of, of no matter how many times they betray you or no matter how bad of a friend they are to you or how good of a friend, that nothing could separate them from your love. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. He displayed it through suffering and dying on the cross. He connected us with his Father again, gave us reconciliation through his death. Being willing to go a million miles of suffering because you love someone, simple acts like this, um, while they might not be simple on your end, they, they, are, they speak the, the truth of the gospel. They are powerful. Um, I read a poem this week, and I'm not sure how it's going to connect with any of you, but it was by um, G.K. Chesterton. It's in a, one of his books called The Everlasting Man. It's a brilliant book. Um, and really the last line here is the one that connects, but um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're kind of into poetry, you might like this. Try to grasp what he's talking about here. Um, this is, hold on, a little background. Um, this is a poem that, it had a huge impact on C.S. Lewis and his conversion from atheism to Christianity. Um, it's a poem about his own conversion, about when he became a follower of Christ. It goes like this. After one moment, when I bowed my head, and the whole world turned over and came upright, and I came out where the old road shone white, I walked the ways and heard what all men said, forests of tongues like autumn leaves unshed, being not unlovable but strange and light, Old riddles and new creeds, not in despite, but softly as, me, as men smile about the dead. The sages have a hundred maps to give that trace their crawling cosmos like a tree. They rattle out reason through many a sieve that stores the sand and lets the gold go free. 
And all these things are less than dust to me because my name is Lazarus and I live. So he's talking about, at the end here, he, he, he notices, he says, they rattle out like, like reason through many a sieve uh, that stores the sand. Like, he sees people sort of like gold panhandling in, in the water or, or sieves. Maybe some kind of screen there that's meant to catch the gold, but all it's doing is letting the gold go free and keeping the stuff that doesn't matter. And he's sort of maybe he's talking about that's how people are treating the important things in the world. They're, they're letting the gold go, the, the story of God, the message of, of truth, and they're holding up their philosophy and reasoning as, as the most important things in the world and their earthly wisdom, and they're letting the really important things go. And he says, basically at the end, and on all of these important things that they had to say, all of these, all of these deep seeds of wisdom that they had that they were trying to give to me, they didn't matter to me anymore because my name is Lazarus and I live. What he's saying is, all the arguments you have, no matter how brilliant they are, you need to know that I was dead and now I'm alive. And you're trying to convince me that that's impossible. You want to convince me that resurrection is not real, that it's impossible, that it can't happen? Well, I'm standing here before you resurrected. There's something in his life that was fixed, and it was fixed by the power of the gospel. A lot of you in this room have this story, this same story. And no amount of intellectual arguing can pull you out of your Christian faith because you were Lazarus and you are alive now. It connects with your heart and it changes you. And at some point, it connects with you so deeply that no amount of intellectual reasoning can pull it out. And one last one that I had up when you guys were coming in. And I'll read this before we go into communion. Um, this is by Pascal. This is one of those, one of those uh, scientists that we talked about earlier. Without this divine knowledge, how could we help feeling either exalted or dejected? The Christian religion alone has been able to cure these twin vices, not by using one to expel the other, according to worldly wisdom, but by expelling both through the simplicity of the gospel. For it teaches the righteous that they still bear the source of all corruption, which exposes them throughout their lives to the error misery and death and sin, and yet it cries out to the most ungodly that they are capable of the grace of the Redeemer. I love that. Thus making those whom it justifies to tremble, yet consoling those whom it condemns. It so nicely tempers fear with the hope through this dual capacity. Grace and sin, it causes infinitely more dejection than mere reason, but without despair and infinitely more exultation the natural pride, but without puffing us up. So it, it gets rid of pride because no matter how good you are, you see a God who is infinitely better. It gets rid of that feeling, that terrible feeling of I'm not good enough if you're feeling like that because it's telling you that there's a God who, who is infinitely powerful yet loves you so much and has made you his child. The gospel hits all of this. It's a story that connects with everyone. We're going to move into a time of communion here. Um, we do this every single week. This is the, one of the most vital parts of our community. And um, we always want to be in communion with Jesus. We take some time and we pray and we, and we spend some time in repentance. We ask God to reveal to us um, the things that we have been doing this week that have not been in line with, with him. Um, the ways we have been living that go against everything that he teaches, and, and we ask him to bring those things to mind, and we spend time repenting of them.
asking God to take them from us, remove them from us. And then we come on up and we take a piece of bread. It symbolizes the body of Christ. We dip it in the wine, and the wine symbolizes uh, the blood of Christ, spilled for all of us. And we eat it, we take it inside of us, as if we're taking the gospel down deep inside of us, and we ponder it and we say, Lord, Jesus, thank you. I do this in, remember, to, in remembrance of you, to remember what you did for me. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, I would ask that you don't take communion with us. Uh, you don't know what you're doing. You don't understand um, the sacredness of it. If you are a Christian, you don't have to be a member of our church. We welcome you. Please do take communion with us. Um, maybe before you do, maybe you, you need to talk to someone here. Maybe you need to confess something. We're a community of confession. Um, find a Christian who plays the role of a priest of Christ and, and, and maybe confess to them and they can look at you and say, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus. That's one of the amazing parts about being a Christian is to be able to do the work of Christ. Um, so please uh, take some time, talk to God, and then t- spend some time in communion. Our communion servers will come on up. We'll have two here and two back there. Father, we love you. You're a holy God. You're a wonderful Savior. We thank you that the gospel encompasses everything, all, all angles of wisdom and knowledge. It affects our heart in a way that is deep and impactful. The story of unwavering love being given to someone who doesn't deserve it. And the things that you gave up to give it to us, Lord, that, that's a powerful st- story. Thank you that your gospel is intellectually satisfying. That nature really does scream out your existence and your creation. It, it spells out your name everywhere we look. We thank you, Father, for everything that you have done for us. We come now to your table and um, we ask that you would reveal things to us that we need to repent of that we need to make right. We pray all of this in your holy, wonderful name. Amen.